Worship a great and mighty and holy God. We got more than 10,000 reasons to worship Him. I'm going to continue through the book of Matthew this morning. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together with your people to worship you. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of the praise of all people here in this community, in Eastman and Dodge County and around the world. God, help us and use us that you might receive the glory that you are due. In Christ's name, amen. Before I get started, I do just want to... Mentioned briefly, in case you missed the church conference last week, um, we did decide to put together a committee, we didn't title it, but Exploration Committee or whatever you want to call it, to look at the options that we have as a church. There's some pretty serious structural issues that we have, um, and we're wanting to think about the short-term and long-term future and health of our church, and so we've put this committee together to, to explore our options. Uh, one option is one option in addition to different options related to fixing or, or replacing or in some other uh, way dealing with our building uh, is a potential merger with Liberty Baptist Church. And so these are all the options that are on the table. And I just wanted to mention that so that you're aware and so that primarily so that you can be praying for our church. If you don't, if you, if you haven't already been praying or praying as earnestly as you uh, could be, I just strongly encourage you as your pastor to make this an urgent matter of prayer. You begin praying for our church, begin praying for this committee, that we would be led by the Spirit, that we would be holy, humble, faithful, wise, understanding, and discerning in everything, that we would seek God's will, and that we would be courageous to follow that wherever it leads. Okay? And that's, that's what we want. And so, please be in earnest prayer. And... Um, And uh, I know that you will. Okay, this morning we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 26, the new Passover, new covenant. New Passover, new covenant. So we've we've gone through the Olivet Discourse, and so that was quite an exciting journey. And that was a large block of teaching from Jesus. And now we're, we're transitioning in the book of Matthew. And so we're obviously in chapter 26, so there's 28 chapters in Matthew, and so obviously we're getting very close to the end. This is, we're wrapping up Jesus' ministry, and uh, Jesus is already in Jerusalem, right? We talked about that quite some time ago during the triumphal entry. And so this is, the, this is the last week. In fact, we're in the final days of Jesus' life. And one of the big things that um, we're going to talk about this morning is the new, the new Passover and the new covenant. When we talk about a new covenant, you know, I, I just always wonder because it, it really took me a while for me to begin to grasp and to think about what, it, what even the new covenant is, even though, even though our Bible is divided between the Old and New Testament. And testament means, it means covenant. And so we have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And that's literally how our Bible is divided. But if someone asked you, what is the New Covenant, would you know what to say? What is it? It's literally probably one of the most important things we could think about and talk about. Jesus died to institute a new 
covenant. And that's one of the things I want to talk about this morning as we begin these final days of Jesus' life. As we talk about new Passover and new covenant from Matthew chapter 26. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for me, to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The word of God, you may be seated. So, I want to look at this passage this morning under three uh, topics that I believe are kind of highlighted here. So I'm not going to walk verse by verse. I'm kind of using bigger chunks um, so that we can actually make it through Matthew um, before Jesus comes back, which may or may not happen. But so 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm not going to go walk by verse by verse, but I'm going to talk about three themes that I believe can be drawn from these kind of eclectic stories uh, that, all, that all tie together from this passage that we just read. And the three points we're going to see is this. Number one, God sovereignly saves through man's evil. God sovereignly saves through man's evil. Number two, God gave Christ as the true Passover lamb. God gave Christ as the true Passover lamb. And number three, God confirmed the new covenant in Christ's blood. God confirmed the new covenant in Christ's blood. So first, God sovereignly saves through man's evil. This, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is Jesus' fourth and final passion prediction. Okay, so if the disciples didn't understand what was happening yet, there's no time left for them to figure it out. Okay, it's Passover week. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover is here. Um, and what I believe we see from this Passover and from one of the and uh, from these collected passages is that, and it's pretty obvious, that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was planned, was the plan of God. It was planned from eternity past and fulfilled in his lifetime in Israel around 2,000 years ago. So, in other words, the crucifixion wasn't an accident, right? It's important for us to remember that. It was, the, it was part of the eternal plan of God. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not like um, Adam and Eve sinned and God's like, uh-oh, what am I going to do now? I believe it was all part of the sovereign, eternal plan of God to bring about his good and wise perfect uh, purposes in the world to reveal himself holy and fully to his creatures to show both his wrath and his mercy by redeeming a lost people, a, a fallen people, through his son. In the book of Revelation, in reference to the, to the first beast who some consider the Antichrist, John refers to those who he says would be saved by the lamb who was slain. And he says that those who were saved by, those who were saved by the lamb who was slain, their names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So this is not, this is not an afterthought. This is part of the eternal purposes of God to glorify himself and to redeem a people for himself, to know him, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And immediately after this fourth passion prediction... It goes, it, it, Matthew goes on to record about how the priests and elders gathered, gathered together and plotted by stealth to kill him. Stealth to kill him. And, when we, and, and thinking about how it was, it was part of the plan of God, what is interesting is that this, this passage itself, remember Jesus says, uh, later it says uh, in verse 24 we read, the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. So in other words, Jesus understood that what was about to happen to him was written of him. It was written down in the scriptures as part of God's plan. Okay? So when, when, you read, when we read this passage about the chief priests and the elders plotting together about Jesus, we recognize that nothing happens by accident. And in fact, the, the Greek text is eerily similar to uh, the Greek text uh, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Psalm 31. Psalm 31, if you go back and read it, is a psalm about a righteous sufferer, a righteous sufferer. And it is a, it is a psalm of prayer from one who trusts in the Lord despite all the schemes that their enemies make against them. And in Psalm 31, 13, it says, 
It says, I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. So that's Psalm 31, 13. Of course, anyone reading the Bible in light of Christ knows that that verse isn't accidental, that it's not merely just uh, the psalmist there lamenting his woes about people who want to kill him. But, it, uh, but the psalms fulfill a prophetic function, and they point forward to Christ, who was the true righteous sufferer, and who would have plots against him, against his life. It's a prophecy. And so we see that Jesus' crucifixion then is not an accident. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. Even the plotting of the, of the leaders and scribes against Jesus was part of the plan of God. To fulfill, to, to who through their evil motives actually fulfill the good purposes of God. And we see the same truth illustrated in this passage uh, in, the, in the betrayal of Judas. Right? It was around this time in the Passion Week that Judas initiates his betrayal and he goes to seek how much money, because we know the Bible says Judas was greedy, to seek how much money that, uh, that he could get for his betrayal of Jesus. And Matthew explicitly mentions that he was given 30 pieces of silver. The reason why that detail is important Because it, again, is according to Scripture. Anyone who would read this who's familiar with the Old Testament would immediately call to mind the passage in Zechariah chapter 11, which says this. It says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So if you go back and you read Zechariah, what, is, what seems to be happening in this passage in Zechariah is that Zechariah has become a shepherd in order to enact, in order to become a living parable about the house of Israel. Prophets did this prophets did this thing all the time. They would literally enact things out to be a living parable of what God was doing and what God was trying to tell the people of Israel. Zechariah became a shepherd to become a living parable where he, and if you look in Zechariah, what it seems to be happening is that God is saying that he's going to break his covenant with Israel because they broke his covenant with him. He was going to break the covenant that he had made with them due in large part to the sin and rebellion of Israel's leaders who were unfaithful shepherds, okay, but whom the people followed. Does that sound familiar? And so in the book of Zechariah, God's going to judge them due largely in part to the unfaithful shepherds and leaders of the people for their rebellion against him. Just like in Jesus' day. And when he gets to the part where he, he... Zechariah basically he, he says I'm tired of working with these the these 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 worthless people basically and he says give me my wages I'm done and so they and so he and so Zechariah goes to them and says whatever you judge my work to be worth pay me and he says they pay him thirty pieces of silver and then he says there um, in verse thirteen it says uh, the Lord said to me throw it to the potter. The lordly price, which I was priced by them, the lordly price. If you're reading it, what I think that means is he's being cynical. He's being sarcastic. He says, this is what, this is how much they valued my work. 
30 pieces of silver. You get to Judas, and Judas is a disciple of Jesus. He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What does that say? It says that is how much Judas thought Jesus was worth. 30 pieces of silver. That's how much he esteemed Jesus. And so Jesus says, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What does that tell you? It's not an accident. Even Jesus' betrayal was not an accident. It was part of the sovereign plan of God to bring about his good purposes in the world. And just because it was God's plan doesn't mean that Judas is off the hook. He's still responsible for his actions and for his decisions. What we see then is that God is able to use evil for good. This is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. You know, you know, sometimes we say things like, and I understand what we're saying. We say God allows things to happen, but, and that's true. God does allow things to happen. God's means of affecting things isn't always the same in every case. I believe that to be true. But at the same time, we should never give the, we should never think that, we should never speak as if God isn't in control. He is. He could have stopped Judas from betraying Jesus, but he didn't. Because he's got a plan and a purpose for everything that God does. God could have stopped Joseph's brothers from selling him into slavery. But he didn't. Is what his brothers did evil? Yes, it was evil. Were they accountable for it? Yes, it was. But later at the end of Genesis, it said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So who sold Joseph into slavery, his brothers or God? Both. The only difference is that his brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Judas meant his betrayal for evil, God meant it for good. And what does it mean? It means we should never, and and this is a temptation today, we should never think that evil is gaining the upper hand against God. We talk like that sometimes. I talk like that sometimes. You You know, things seem to be getting so bad right now. But just remember, it's not like God stopped being in control. You know when the, you know the very moment that the devil thought he won? He killed Jesus. Guess what? The second Jesus died, his nail was put in the, his own coffin. Why? Because God uses evil for good. So even when it seems like evil has won, even when it seemed like evil has won, the murder of the Son of God, God won. It was the greatest act of good that was ever accomplished because the world was saved through his Son. So we should never think that we should never think that God stopped being in control. And in fact, if we see evil multiplying in the world, we should be thinking God's about to do something big. Because it is a, it is a small thing for God to use evil for good. And so the moment the evil thinks it's winning is the moment God's about to show up and do something great. So number one, God sovereignly saves through man's evil. Number two, God gave Christ as the Passover lamb. God gave Christ as the Passover lamb. So if we look at the passage, it says, uh, verse 2 there, it said that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In verse 6 and following, it tells the story of um, uh, Jesus at at supper uh, in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. 
uh, I believe it's the Gospel of John who says that this person was Mary, right? So, so Lazarus, uh, Lazarus lives in Bethany, but they're at the house of Simon the leper, okay? And so they're, they're, they're eating there at the house of Simon the leper. And uh, again, John says it was Mary, and he co- she comes up with this alabaster flask of expensive ointment and pours it over his head. And when the disciples saw it, it says they were indignant. Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But then Jesus rebukes them for their, for their indignation, okay? And then it says that wherever she is proclaimed in all the world, it will be remembered of her. Okay, and then the next part in verse 26 and following, it talks about how Jesus is at the the institution of the Last Supper, essentially, right? They're eating. Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, said, Take it, this is my body. He took the cup, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, the blood of the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So if we're looking at all these passages together, I think what we see is that Christ, God gave Christ as the true Passover lamb. Now let me explain that. Jesus' last day took last days took place during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, commonly known as the Passover, even though technically Passover was just the, the you know the, the main day, but the whole feast was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But the Passover was the centerpiece. Okay? What is the Passover? The Passover was and remains the quintessential salvific event in Jewish history, right, for the Jews, right? That is the day that God saved them and constituted them as his people and separated them out from the nations to be his people. So the Passover represents the great day of salvation for the Jews, essentially. And you remember how it went, okay? God raised up Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And he wouldn't. So God sent ten plagues to break Pharaoh's stiff neck. And of course he would not relent until the tenth and final plague, which would be the destruction of the firstborn. Now in ancient times, the firstborn, of course, represented, uh, was the heir of the household, the heir, H-E-I-R, of the household. And it essentially represented the, the future of the family, right? That's why Abraham lamented that he had no heir because he, they would, basically his family would cease and someone else would be his heir. Okay, So the firstborn was hugely important in ancient times. The death of the firstborn was almost like the end of the family. And so God was going essentially to remove a future from Egypt through this plague if they would not relent. And so, and interestingly though, as part of this Passover plague, even though in the other plagues Israel by and large was exempt, This time, Israel themselves were not exempt from the plague. The destroyer would come upon them as well as the Egyptians if they did not trust and obey God. And this is what they had to do. They had to take a lamb, a spotless lamb. All right. They had to keep it in their house until the day of the Passover. Okay. And then they had to kill the lamb. And take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of the house. And then God literally said that the destroyer was going to come among you. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you in judgment. And so it is called the Passover. So the believing Jews were thus passed over in judgment while Egypt was judged 
to the point that Pharaoh finally lets them go free. And so what does the Passover essentially represent? Well, if you think about it, it represents the salvation of Israel, right? Because it's through the Passover that they are set free from slavery in Egypt. And anyone who's read the Bible or has read the New Testament, I mean, you know, if you have a brain, you know what the Passover is about because it's just so obvious that the Passover isn't about the Passover. It's about Jesus. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. You see, humanity is in far worse slavery, believe it or not, than the Jews were in Egypt. We are enslaved to sin and self, self and under the just wrath and condemnation of God. And it's just as it seemed impossible to them that they could escape from Egypt. So it was impossible for us to escape from slavery to sin and self. But God made a way just as just as they were pressed up against the Red Sea and didn't know how it was going to happen. God made a way when there was no way. He gave his son, who John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus, the, the, the Passover cannot be properly understood apart from Jesus because clearly God gave the Passover to Israel. They celebrated it every year. Why? Why? So that when Jesus showed up, they would know. But they didn't. Which is why Jesus told them over and over, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? It's in this book. It's about Jesus the whole time. He get, they celebrate the Passover every year so that when Jesus came, they would know that it was about him. That Jesus' blood would be shed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to deliver us from the, the true slavery, slavery from sin and self. So that even though we deserve judgment, even though God should come and wipe us off the face of the earth, if we, by faith, accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, by faith, it is, is the blood of Jesus gets wiped upon our house. So that when we face the judgment of God, which is coming for everyone... The Bible says it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And so either when we die or when Christ comes back, whichever comes first, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. We will deserve everything that God's going to give us. But our only hope is if he sees the blood, he will pass over you in judgment. And you see, that's the difference. He won't pass over you because you were better than other people. He won't pass over you because you were smarter than other people. He won't pass over because you had so much money in your bank account or so many people liked you or where you lived or whatever. The only way God will pass over you in judgment is if he sees the blood applied to your heart through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through the blood of the Lamb.
That's what this is talking about. That's why Jesus died at the Passover. Why in the world would Jesus just happen to die during the Jewish Passover? One, one day a year. The significance of Jesus' death isn't lost on Mary as much as it's lost on everyone else. We have the story of Mary. She broke a, she broke a vial of highly expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' head with it. And we know if you compare it with the other Gospels, Jesus' disciples, and especially Judas, was perturbed by this, caught up of the practicality of it, caught up of the monetary value of it, that they utterly miss the beautiful beautiful sacrifice she makes for Jesus as he approaches his death and in other places it it tells us that this flask could have been sold for 300 denarii a denarius was a day's wage a day's wage for a, a day laborer so 300 denarii would be 300 days wages which would approximately be 10 months worth of wages. Now, I don't know how much money you make in 10 months. But she poured 10 months of wages over Jesus' head. Now, I'll just be honest with you, church. Judas and the disciples who grumbled about the impracticality of, of, of what she just did, they were Southern Baptists. Because Southern Baptists think that practicality is the same thing as godliness. But it's not always the same. It's not always the same. She poured 10 months wages over Jesus' head. You'd have to have about 20 church conferences to get a vote to do that. But she did it. Why? Why? Because she loved Jesus. She loved Jesus. She loved him. What is 10 months wages when you love Jesus? We need to learn from Mary what it is like to love Jesus. And sometimes love calls you to do impractical things. It's not practical to love people most of the time. It's very impractical. It's very inconvenient. It can be very expensive to love people. But what does it matter when you love them? When you love them. See, Mary didn't fully understand either, but she grasped it better than the disciples, if you can believe that. She loved Jesus. She poured poured out her most precious gift to her Lord and her Savior. And she didn't realize it, but she was anointing him for burial because her Passover lamb was about to be slain. And guess what? She's remembered to this very day for what she did. No one's ever going to remember. Have you applied the blood of the Lamb of Christ to your sins by faith? 
when you stand before God on the, on the day of judgment, is he going to see the blood? That's the most important question we all have to ask ourselves. In this room, if you're watching online, will, will Jesus see the blood? You see, God made a way when there was no way. He opened the door by grace through giving his son. But we have to apply that blood by faith. And when Jesus' blood is applied in our lives, it changes us, right? So it's not just, oh yeah, we say we believe in Jesus. Anybody can say that. Jesus, no. God knows whether that blood's really there or not. He came to deliver us from something far greater than slavery in Egypt. He came to deliver us from sin. And then the second thing I want to think about ask is, do we love Jesus to the point of impracticality? When's the last time you did something impractical for Jesus? God sovereignly saves through man's evil. God gave Christ as the true Passover lamb. Number three, God confirmed the new covenant in Christ's blood. God confirmed the new covenant in Christ's blood. It says, as they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took the bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So Jesus took the Passover And fulfilled it, right? So remember, this is the Passover meal. But see what Jesus is doing, right? He's taking the Passover meal, but he's actually transforming it, right? He's taking one Jewish ritual, but now he's creating a Christian ritual. Right? You see that? He's transforming the Passover. So that it takes on the full significance that it meant to have all along, right? Which is why Christians don't celebrate the Passover. We don't celebrate the Passover. Why? Because the Passover is a shadow. Christ is the substance. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because that's the transformed Passover. The elements of the Passover are transformed into the elements of the Lord's table. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember what Christ has done for us, that we are, through Jesus Christ, partakers of a new covenant. Now, it's very subtle, but we just we can't miss the weight of those words that Jesus says that this is my blood of the covenant. Because covenant, I believe, is the backbone of the biblical storyline. And it, and, it, and it is showing us how God is unfolding his perfect plan in the world through the unfolding of the covenants. So many scholars have noted this, but that in ancient times, when kings would conquer other kings, they would make covenants with them. Okay, and the covenants with the so a greater king would make a covenant with this lesser king and basically say, you be loyal to me. And all my resources are available to you for, you know, to protect you, to keep you, whatever, to be there. Okay, so you be loyal to me. And I'll protect you. There's there's this covenant. A covenant does what? At its root, a covenant establishes a relationship between two parties and it gives the terms of that relationship. Right? The closest thing that we still have today, of course, is a marriage, right? A marriage is a promise and agreement where that establishes a certain type of 
loyal, loyal relationship between two people, but there are stipulations to that relationship or else it becomes broken. So this is a very familiar category to ancient peoples. And so people recognize that when God delivered Israel out of slavery, he took them to Mount Sinai and he made with them a covenant. God, the great king, through, through saving his people from slavery, made a covenant with them that they would be his people and he would be their God and there would be stipulations of their loyalty to him and he would, he would exercise all his power on their behalf as they remained faithful to him. That was, that was the old covenant. That was the old covenant enshrined on Mount Sinai, summarized by the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant. And every covenant in ancient times had to be sealed with blood. Had to be sealed with blood. And the reason why covenants were sealed with blood is because the slain animals was, were essentially saying this. They, they would... The animal would be slain, and basically it would be, say, if we violate the covenant, let me become like this slain animal. In Exodus 24, 4-8, it says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the, hear, in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. We know how that went. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. He threw the blood on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. We know that Israel broke the covenant over and over and over again. And when you read the storyline of Scripture, and this is so crucial, when you read the storyline of Scripture, you see, you can see that the Old Covenant, and this is, the, this is the testimony of the New Testament, the Old Covenant wasn't bad, but it was incomplete. It was God's perfect law. You see, if the, if the covenant was 100% what God intended to be all along, there wouldn't have to have been a new covenant. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. But what did Israel do despite having the covenant? They disobeyed God over and over and over again. It was God's perfect law outside of us to show us the way. But the problem with humanity and the problem with Israel and the problem with us is not outside. It's inside is the problem. So God's law was perfect outside of us. The problem with the law wasn't the law. The problem with the law was us. We couldn't keep the law. So what did God do? He said through the prophets that he would make a new covenant. Jeremiah 31. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each teach his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between the old and new covenant? The old covenant was written on tablets of stone, but it didn't solve our greatest problem because our problem wasn't out there. Our problem was in here. So God said that he was going to make a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant where God's law is written not out there, but God's law is written right here on the human heart. That is the new covenant. No one... We'll have to teach each other, uh, his neighbor or brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. What does that mean? What, what, Jesus' blood of the new covenant. Jesus came to do what? To seal a new covenant. A new covenant so that what? So that by faith in Jesus, his blood is applied to our hearts. And guess what? We receive the Holy Spirit. And God's law is written not out there. It's written on our hearts. So in other words, if you are a Christian, if you are a member of the new covenant, then you're not just a person who keeps rules. You are a person who has been changed by God. Because anybody can, anybody can read rules out there. The question is not, of a Christian is not, can you read the rules that are out there? The, Christ, the question of being a Christian is, has God written the rules in here? So that you want to obey God. So that you've been changed from the heart. Because, because everyone in the new covenant, if you are in the new covenant, I don't have to tell you to know the Lord. You already know him. I don't have to teach you to know the Lord. You already know him. Because if you're in the new covenant, God has already changed your heart by his spirit. The law has been written on your heart. And, and he does what? And in so doing, he solves the problem that the law couldn't. He changes our hearts. That's what we celebrate in the new covenant. That's what we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. So number one, God sovereignly saves through man's evil. Number two, God gave Christ as a true Passover lamb. Number three, God confirmed the new covenant in Christ's blood. And so as I close this morning, the invitation is very simple. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see those Jews back at the Passover? Probably some of them did some pretty bad things, but guess what? All they had to do was come under the blood. You see, in the new covenant, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter for how long you've done it. All that matters is, will God see the blood? If he sees the blood, he'll pass over you. You see, salvation is about, isn't about what we do. It's about what God has done for us. And so anybody who will 
repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and put your faith in him, that blood of his blood will be applied to your life and God will see the blood. And you'll enter into the new covenant and God, by his spirit, will change you from the inside out to be who you were made to be, to know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the new covenant. Thank you, Lord, that you sealed the covenant, not with the blood of goats or bulls or rams, but you sealed it with your very own blood so that we might be passed over in judgment. Thank you, Lord, for that gift. And I pray this morning, King Jesus, I pray, Lord, that maybe someone this morning has yet to come up under the blood, but you are working in them now through your spirit to help them see that you are the way of escape, that you are the way of salvation. I pray by faith, God, they may come under your blood this morning, be forgiven, be saved, be changed.